back at the lab. Meanwhile, the work on motivation and reinforcement was moving forward. Premack had given me one of the experimental systems he'd built for testing motivation mechanisms. He liked an idea of mine that followed up on one of his theories and happily provided me with a gadget to test it. It was a device he'd rigged to allow a rat either to run in a wheel or to drink water. More specifically, the device was able to measure the responses of a rat when it did either. My question was, would an adipsic rat, a rat that will not drink as the result of a specific brain lesion, drink if it was rewarded with an opportunity to run? Rats normally love to run, and if deprived of doing so, they will seek ways to run. If the adipsic rats would start to drink in order to have that opportunity to run, it would urge a more dynamic view of brain function and caution against the ever-growing tendency to see rigid one-to-one -one models relating structure to function. In fact, we learned that abdipsic rats gladly drank if that was what they had to do in order to run. Again, in some sense, we were seeing a cross-queuing strategy that allowed the brain, a dynamic, ever-changing system, constantly in action, to switch strategies in order to accomplish a goal. In this case, the experimenter was creating new contingencies. If you do this, then you get that. That evoked new strategies. More generally, it revealed that it was probably always dangerous to claim that a particular brain network has a monopoly on any particular behavior. The brain is wily and does not follow simple rules. If one network is knocked out, a detour is rigged. It was a striking and, to my mind, an important finding. But, as it sometimes goes, it has been largely ignored. Still, once hooked on the idea, I tried all kinds of experiments to further demonstrate that specific functional parts of the brain are very much a part of an inherently dynamic system. In one wild experiment, I tested monkeys with inferior temporal lobe lesions that rendered them unable to learn the difference between two visual patterns for a food reward. I wondered whether they would learn the new discriminations if they were given the opportunity to run in a large monkey wheel I had specially built for them. Here I discovered that I had more in common with monkeys than I thought. Monkeys hate to run in a wheel. Instead, a group of temporal lobe lesioned monkeys actually learned new discriminations in order to lock the wheel so it wouldn't move. Capitalizing in that preference for a stationary wheel, I found that visual capacity developed in monkeys, even though the neural pathway that normally enables such visual learning was missing. Same point, different species. First Steps into the Neurologic Clinic I had finally contacted the New York University School of Medicine with the hope of studying neurologic patients with disorders such as global aphasia, patients who could not use or understand language due to a brain lesion of the left cerebral hemisphere. It is a devastating condition, and it puzzled me. Was it that the remaining intact right hemisphere couldn't cover for the left hemisphere? Or was it that the tests used to try to elicit language function were poorly designed? Both Leon's and Premack's psychological perspectives were pounding away in me. Requesting to work with patients in New York was no simple matter. How? Where? Who says? When? These are the kinds of arrangements that require a planned process and tremendous staging. Once again, luck was with me. NYU School of Medicine had a storied neuropsychology group, once led by Hans Lucas Duber, who had moved on to be the head of brain science at MIT. Footnote. 
Neuropsychology studies the structure and function of the brain to understand how they relate to specific psychological processes and behaviors. With him gone, I went in to meet the then chair of neurology, only to learn he was most definitely not interested in neuropsychology and claimed to have barely heard of Tuber. But as I say, luck was with me, and someone put me in touch with NYU's Martha Taylor Sarno, their expert in aphasia, and a research project was born. By then I was learning that everything in New York comes with a story, and I remember one in particular. It was Thanksgiving Day. I got a call to get up to NYU for a special testing of a patient. We had a car by then, so I drove up to the medical center on First Avenue. Now, medical centers have long swaths of street parking reserved for MDs who are easily identified in New York since they have their identities stamped on their license plates. On a normal business day, one would never park there unless authorized to do so by virtue of possessing one of these plates. It's being Thanksgiving, however, no one was using the spaces. I was in a hurry, parked my car in one of the normally coveted places, and went in to see the patient. All was well until I came out to drive home. There it was, a freshly minted parking ticket. I was furious because it made no sense to me. After all, I was doing medical research on a holiday for the good of humanity, or something like that. I chose to fight the ticket and sent off letters to the city, the whole bit. About three weeks later, I got a call in my office at work. It was the New York City Parking Commissioner. He said, Say, Doc, we got your letter and we agree with you. Your ticket has been waived, canceled, forgotten. I said, Oh, that's great. Then he added, Now, Doc, you teach at NYU, right? Yeah, I said. He said, So listen, my daughter goes there. I want you to do me a favor. I want her to be able to call you if she ever gets in trouble, okay? Holy smokes. I was really in New York now. Everything and everybody's leveraged. Back in Santa Barbara, Primack had moved on from studying motivation and instead was testing the mental structures of a chimp by teaching her crude communication skills. It, too, was groundbreaking research with immediate possible implications for patients suffering left hemisphere stroke. Again, our simple idea was that a stroke patient with a damaged left hemisphere had a whole intact right hemisphere that might be able, if trained correctly, to compensate for the left's damage in some way. David and I had wondered about this before I left for the East. Why couldn't we teach an aphasic the kind of meta-language system his chimp had learned, which would allow for a crude kind of communication from the remaining right side of the brain? Maybe we could open up untapped lines of communication with these devastated, largely mute patients. Of course, I knew all about what isolated right hemispheres could do. We had worked for five years on getting right hemispheres of split-brain patients to do more than rule supreme on visual motor tasks, such as the block design test. We knew that some of them could even read simple nouns. Scant data existed, however, on how well the right hemisphere could think symbolically. Premax chimp work pushed us to try the idea out. If chimps could learn a simple symbolic system, then why couldn't a surviving right hemisphere? But Premack had achieved where the chimp was inspired. He was able to show very elegantly that chimpanzees can do analogies. He reasoned that an animal can make a judgment of whether two objects are the same or different without understanding anything about the relationship between the two objects. He put it this way. Sameness, difference, is not a relation between objects, e.g. a same A, a different B, or properties. It is a relation between relations. For example... 
consider the relation between AA and BB, CD and EF on the one hand, and AA and CD on the other. AA and BB are both instances of same. The relation between them is same. CD and EF are both instances of different. The relation between them, therefore, is same. AA is an instance of same, and CD is an instance of different. The relation between them is different. This analysis set the stage for teaching chimpanzees the word same for AA and different for CD. When taught these words, chimpanzees spontaneously formed simple analogies between physically similar relations, e.g. small circle is to large circle as small triangle is to large triangle, and functionally similar relations, e.g. key is to lock as can opener is to can. Now that is an ingenious analysis. On the surface, it seemed unlikely a patient with a major language disturbance could match the feats of a chimp. It was time to do experiments. Along with my new NYU graduate student, Andrea Valetri-Glass, and with Premac still in California at UCSB, we began. With airplanes, phones, and fax, it somehow worked. We studied several patients intensely. I discovered that patients with left hemisphere lesions who are rendered severely aphasic, could nonetheless learn to varying degrees the artificial language that was successfully trained to chimps. In other words, we thought at the time that in some of the patients, the spared right hemisphere could reason at least to the level of a clever chimpanzee. The right hemisphere was, we assumed, carrying out the cognitive work in these experiments. Some of the patients were so severely damaged on the left, it was the only logical possibility. At the same time, our belief that the right hemisphere should be able to do at least simple tasks was challenged by another study we carried out at NYU. It deals with a phenomenon called pure word deafness, the inability to comprehend spoken words. Patients with this problem could still read and understand words presented to them visually, but they could not understand words spoken to them. This was caused by specific left hemisphere lesion. Okay, we said. But these same patients also have right hemispheres that are working. Why can't the right hemisphere take up the slack and understand spoken language? After all, the disconnected right hemisphere of some split-brain patients could understand spoken words. Remember, in those days, we were still thinking in very simple ways about how the brain worked. It wasn't long before a patient came along who allowed us to test the idea, once again proving the richness of the neuropsychologic clinic. The natural accidents of nature provide unending insights into how our brains are organized. Case W.B. had been a business executive when he suffered a stroke that left him with his strange inabilities. While he could read perfectly well, write perfectly well, and had a fairly normal audiogram hearing test, he could not understand spoken language. So show him the word knife printed out on a card, and he could say it, write it, and find the object from a grab bag of objects. On the other hand, if you said the word knife to him, he was unable to make any meaningful response. In test after test, this condition persisted for the rest of his life. This simple finding was the exact opposite result from what we expected as a result of our split-brain work. It got us thinking that maybe our thoughts about right hemisphere language were too general, too expansive. While there was no question that some language understanding capability was present in the right hemispheres of NG and LB, maybe they were the exception, not the rule. 
Maybe the positive finding that global aphasics were able to carry out simple chimp-level analogies was illusory as well. Maybe it was remnant parts of the left hemisphere carrying out that deeply cognitive task. Maybe, after all, most people only possessed language in their dominant hemisphere. Fifty years later, the field is still struggling with these questions. Challenging the Idea of Two Minds The tug of the new intellectual issues pushed by Premack in the weekly cross-examination about everything from Leon found me constantly reassessing the earlier claims Sperry and I had made about two minds and one brain. Added to this constant discussion were frequent trips to New York City by Donald McKay, the sophisticated neuroscientist philosopher whom I had brought to UCSB for a few months in 1967, and who also had issues with the first split-brain story of two minds. In tolerating the idea of two minds, Premack and Festinger gave moral support. Meanwhile, McKay simply didn't buy it. Over martinis and Manhattans at Il Bambino, we tried to hash things out. Even McKay, a physicist and a practicing Presbyterian, would throw back in Manhattan as we waited for the shrimp scampi to arrive. Out of the blue, a request came in to write a review of split-brain research for the American Scientist, the journal of the Sigma Xi organization. It was a good place to discuss such a grand issue as One Brain, Two Minds, which in fact became the title of my article. As I reread the article now, some forty years after I wrote it, I can see the tug of war that was starting in me. While I staunchly defended and argued for the double-mind idea, I called upon the new kind of experiments and data I had developed at NYU. These would, in the long run, find me changing my views and facing a system much more complicated than the one I had defended. In the paper, I started out with a summarizing statement that the right hemisphere could read, remember, write, emote, and act all by itself. It can do almost anything the left can do, with admitted limitations in the degree of competence. I went on to say that while some of us focused on this kind of result, others focused on what may still be connected and transferring through lower brain systems, or how each hemisphere might have different cognitive styles of handling the sensory information it received. It was to all of this, no matter what the current researchers and split-brain work were doing, that McKay raised the idea of normative systems. This old chestnut from philosophy, worked hard by one of McKay's countrymen, David Hume stated that beings like humans have certain behaviors and thoughts that are part of the human condition. All that we do is normative, that is, concerned with following the directives of those core preferences and capacities, even though they may be culturally learned. McKay was arguing that this is what people do, and that no internal disconnection can change our normative stance on the actions we take. When these philosophical ideas were applied to brains, his views were consistent with the thought straight out of Wikipedia. Normative statements and norms, as well as their meanings, are an integral part of human life. They are fundamental for prioritizing goals and organizing and planning thought, belief, emotion, and action, and are the basis of much ethical and political discourse. This sort of thinking and framing of the issue of split brains was novel and seemingly distant from actual experimental studies. But McKay kept hammering at it with questions. How can each hemisphere have two different prioritizing systems, two different evaluations of a common stimulus? How can one like an orange and the other not like an orange? It was definitely time, again in the Francis Bacon tradition, 
to leave Il Bambino and get into the lab and see what could be done. In particular, McKay wanted to see more direct evidence. He wanted to see both hemispheres ready to act, but with each holding different evaluations of the same stimulus. He wanted to see the right hemisphere love PB&Js, and the left hate them, and the two duke it out for lunch. We first started to get at this with monkey research. Alan Gibson, a graduate student at NYU who had come with me from UCSB, had the bright idea to make a lesion on one side of the hypothalamus of a monkey. The hypothalamus, which is at the base of the brain, controls much of our eating behavior. What if half of it were damaged? Would a split-brain monkey then be less motivated to act for a food reward when viewing the world through the hemisphere associated with the lesion? Would it act normally through the other hemisphere? That is exactly what happened. Each hemisphere seemed to possess its own preference and prioritizing system, mounting evidence for separate normative systems, but still not enough. We kept after it. J.D. Johnson, also a graduate student, and I did another experiment on monkeys. I must say this one was pretty clever. Split-brain monkeys were trained to learn a simple visual discrimination through one eye on what is called a fixed reward schedule, or FR2. This means that on every other learning trial, the half-brain viewing the visual task is rewarded if the response is correct. So rewards come every second trial, not on every trial. Still, the half-brain learns the task well, no problem. Now comes the fun part. While the hemisphere that has learned the problem performs the task, the naive hemisphere is allowed to view the behavior of the trained hemisphere, but only on the trials where no reward is present. We had already done studies where the naive hemisphere watched the trained hemisphere when rewards were present on every trial. Under those conditions, the naive hemisphere learned quickly. But what if the naive hemisphere watched the other hemisphere perform correctly but without reward? Could it learn under these conditions too? After all, if the normative system was operating and pervasive, both hemispheres should be tuned in to the fact that the stimulus choice associated with the trained hemisphere's consistent, correct response was tied to a nice reward. Again, the results were striking. Not only was there no suggestion that the naive hemisphere knew the positive value of correct stimulus, the naive half-brain tried to disrupt the choices of the trained brain. It was like another animal fighting over food. What was also emerging was the difference between information playing into normative processes that could remain what we called cold versus information that was hot, that is, emotionally laden. The best example of this had come a few years earlier, when we tested case NG in Santa Barbara. In that test, the goal was for the left and right hemispheres to learn, without being told to choose, say, the numeral one when presented with the choice of a zero and a one. In one stage of the experiment, we gave reinforcement only to the left hemisphere by flashing the word right or wrong after the correct or incorrect response. When we did this, the patient's left hemisphere learned the task quickly, but because the feedback had only been given to the left brain and it did not leak over in some way, the right hemisphere did not learn. In short, it appeared the right hemisphere never got a cue from the left hemisphere about which light to continue to push, so it chose randomly. In a second stage of the experiment, I admonished the patient for making such a simple mistake when the right hemisphere was wrong. She blushed and was embarrassed. Emotions are generated from parts of the brain that have not been separated, and thus both hemispheres are privy to them. The emotion of embarrassment produced by my admonishments 
now served as a feedback cue, a negative feedback cue to the right hemisphere. From that point on, the right hemisphere quickly learned the task in normal time. What was so remarkable, however, is that what the right hemisphere was learning was not what the left hemisphere thought the right hemisphere was learning. Thus, when I asked her, following all of this, how she made her choice, she, her left hemisphere, said she picked the one. What her right hemisphere actually had learned instead, however, was not to pick the zero. Again, her left hemisphere didn't know what the right had learned, and the right had learned because it had been cued by embarrassment during the training phase. Not only smart, but a smarty pants. Living in New York provided all kinds of new reinforcements for me, too. My contact with Buckley increased, and he invited me to several of his National Review editorial dinner parties, where his senior editors would blow off steam after a hard day of work putting the current issue of the magazine to bed. The Buckleys hosted social occasions several times a week, which, for mere mortals, would be in the category of too much. Most people have thrown dinner parties at some point and have most likely come to the conclusion that they are enjoyable at first but almost invariably drag on too late, since no one quite knows how to end them. As a result, it usually takes several months for another dinner party to seem like a good idea. The Buckleys solved the dinner party exit dilemma with elegant precision. The guests arrived at 7.45 and had drinks until 8.15. Dinner was then served until about 9.20 whereupon the company repaired to the living room for coffee and cigars until 9.50. At that point, some confederate in the group made it clear to one and all that it was time to leave. By 10, the party was over. Bill went upstairs to write his column for the next day, and everyone was happy. I have adopted the Buckley method to great advantage, although I don't use the confederate angle. At 9.30, I am not the night owl that Buckley was. I just tell everybody that it is time to go. Charlotte and I have made dinner parties a big part of our life, and I would venture to say that over the past 37 years, the 300 or so we have given have played a consequential role in contributing to the field of cognitive neuroscience. One night in 1971, the schedule at the Buckleys was thrown off. Daniel Ellsberg had just leaked the Pentagon Papers, the Edward Snowden scale leak of the day, and Bill and his feisty editors came up with the idea of publishing a spoof on the papers. Since I was sitting in the room, I was assigned to write some memos from Dean Rusk, who had served as Secretary of State from 1961 to 1969, about the Vietnam War. A few years earlier, Bill had rejected and sent back a manuscript that I had submitted for publication in the National Review on the Watts riots, with the comment, Return to Mike Gazaniga in a plain manila envelope, penned at the top. I'm sure he was wary about the prospect of my pulling off this assignment, but it turned out to be easy. Speaking in government ease in memo form was a snap. Years of writing grants and memos in large universities, where the very life of language is squelched, had admirably prepared me to pound out why Rusk thought the war should be ended quickly. All government systems develop acronyms, and so I came up with STW, which meant short-term warfare. The alternative, LTW, you got it, long-term warfare, was not acceptable to the American people, and on and on. Bill loved it, and a few days later the story hit. Walter Cronkite didn't realize it was a hoax and opened the CBS Evening News with a picture of the cover of the National Review issue about the Pentagon Papers and calls poured into the magazine. Somebody called the retired Dean Rusk in Atlanta and read him my memo. 
He said that although he didn't recall the memo, he might have written it. I'm still not quite sure what Bill had in mind with this whole plan. He was off in Vancouver for two or three days, unavailable for comment. When he arrived home a couple of days later, there was a huge news conference, and in one of the great verbal dodges of all time, he came up with some profound moral reason why he had perpetrated the stunt. I was convinced at that moment that Bill should be elected President of the United States for the sheer fun they would bring. William Randolph Hearst Jr. called the prank one of the most sensationally successful spoofs in the history of American journalism. On a different front, I had convinced Bill he ought to have great mind scientists on his TV show, Firing Line. I mean, how many politicians can you listen to? So he did. First off was a show featuring the great behaviorist B.F. Skinner and my pal Donald McKay. It was on the nature of personal freedom. Calling it high level would be shooting low, even by the usual Buckley standard of erudition. For years, it would be his most popular show. A couple of years later, I convinced Bill to do a series of shows. He got Leon to do one again with Skinner on the mechanisms of moral development. In another show, Premack and Nathan Azrin, a psychologist who thought anything could be trained into anybody, discussed the limits of behavioral control. I was quite proud to have played a role in getting this kind of discussion on television. More broadly, it showed once again that real cultural leaders, no matter their politics or their background, can play together just fine. That discovery has had a huge influence on my life. On the move again. The family was growing. With three young, energetic daughters, it was time to try the suburbs. We chose Weston, Connecticut, for a variety of reasons one of which was its pastoral beauty. Still, it was a two-hour commute each way, each day, which meant four hours of suspended thought. The mornings were fine, and in fact enjoyable. Hit the station, grab a coffee and the Times, sit back in a comfortable train, and off you go to Grand Central Terminal and a subway ride down to Greenwich Village. The energy level was high, and since everybody else was doing it, it all seemed normal. Coming home at night was another matter. Fatigue was what got me. The end of the day called for a beer, a copy of the New York Post, and a hope for a seat on the train to Westport, my stop. The train floor becomes sticky with the commuter's beer, and the belligerence level goes up. All in all, it was not a whole lot different than a German beer hall. Just a few years of this grind did me in. Out of the blue, I got a call from the State University of New York, Stony Brook, and was asked if I wanted to move there. I immediately said it sounded interesting and went out for the usual job talk and dinner. I liked it all. It, too, had an excellent apartment and was in a beautiful location that would require no commuting. We moved to Stony Brook on Long Island about 60 miles from Manhattan that summer. Just before I left for Long Island and my new life, I got another call. This one from Dr. Ernest Sachs up at Dartmouth Medical School. He was head of neurology at the time, and he invited me up to give a lecture. I was thrilled. I was to play the role of professor at my old alma mater. It was especially sweet because the very same medical school had rejected my application eleven years earlier, even though I was an undergraduate at Dartmouth and my brother was one of their stellar graduates. It is events like this in one's past that fall off the storyline. What if I had been accepted and gone? There would have been no split-brain work for me. How would that whole story have been different? I believe that things just happen in life, and pretty much after the fact, we make up a story to make it all seem rational. We all like simple stories that suggest a causal chain to life's events. 
yet randomness is ever-present. Of course, even more important when we choose a new course in our lives are the new people we meet as a result. Stony Brook proved a rich experience for me, both scientifically and personally. I was lucky to have a series of outstanding graduate students, in particular, Joseph Ledoux, Mr. Creativity and Energy Personified. After receiving his Ph.D. with me, he went on almost single-handedly to put the field of the neuroscience of emotion on solid footing. Joe, from southern Louisiana, is a musical Cajun. Is that redundant? At heart and at night grabs his Stratocaster to play with his band, the Amygdaloids. Never far from neuroscience, their CDs are titled Heavy Mental, Theory of My Mind and All in Our Minds. Had I not taken the job, I might never have had the opportunity to know him. At any rate, after the lecture at Dartmouth, a young neurosurgeon, Donald Wilson, approached to say he had sectioned the callosums of some patients and would I be interested in studying them? Would I ever? Wilson had started a new series of cases at Dartmouth, but nobody was working with them. He, too, had decided the surgery could help those patients who were not being successfully managed with anti-epileptic drugs. In the California series, both the anterior commissure, which resides deep in the brain, and the corpus callosum were sectioned. He felt the surgery could be improved in terms of outcomes if sectioning the small anterior commissure, a small bundle of nerve fibers that, similar to the corpus callosum, joins parts of the two hemispheres, could be avoided. In cutting the anterior commissure, one had to enter structures called the lateral ventricles, a process that sometimes introduced infection. Wilson also introduced another new technique. Cutting the entire corpus callosum was a long procedure, almost seven hours. He thought it would be less traumatic on the patient to do the surgery in two stages. Thus he cut the posterior half of the callosum, and then a few weeks later the anterior half. As I'll explain, this allowed for some major insights into colossal organization. I could barely contain myself. I had desperately missed studying split-brain patients and was eager. First, I had to figure out how and where to test the several patients. It soon became clear that I needed to test them in their New England homes, which were spread all over Vermont and New Hampshire. How was that going to work? To get going, I simply decided I would haul testing equipment into their homes and do it like I had done it in Los Angeles. That proved to be short-lived. While there were some notable exceptions, many of the patients lived in remote trailers that did not lend themselves to this sort of thing. Then the idea of a trailer was born. I went back home and I bought a Delray trailer that I could haul behind the family car. If I remember correctly, it cost $1,400, and a neighbor and I converted it into a lab. Now my mobile lab could be driven anywhere, and we could study the patients in our professional space, leaving the patients' families to their own private space. Our mobile lab didn't get its upgrade until years later. By the time we actually had pulled up stakes in Connecticut and moved to Long Island, the new split-brain testing program was launched. Multiple trips to New England slowly established the fact that a growing and important population of patients was becoming available for testing. There were, nonetheless, major logistical problems. Driving up to New England from Weston was a relatively short affair, while driving from Stony Brook either indirectly by driving toward New York City and the Throgs Neck Bridge or by taking the Port Jefferson Ferry was a challenge. We had traded the family car for an orange van, freshly driven in from California, following a cross-country trip and summer vacation, and it proved to be a lifesaver on more than one icy road trip. 
The real advance in the research program, however, came not from the testing gear and trailer, but from my bevy of new graduate students. Energy and smarts is what counts, and they all had it. Our frequent road trips to New England became legendary, and of course they were fun. When new postdoctoral fellows would come to be interviewed for jobs, they were intent on reviewing what they had accomplished in their thesis work. I would look at them blankly as they finished because, even though they had all accomplished something of value, I had a critical question. Do you drive? Don't quit your day job. The penal colony architecture of the State University of New York Stony Brook was an anomaly in the otherwise idyllic setting of the Long Island shore. Stony Brook, Setauket, and Port Jefferson, snuggled into the North Shore, were rough-hewn and breathtaking. Governor Nelson Rockefeller decided to compete with the University of California system in the early 1960s by building Stony Brook. But something went wrong in the design department. It was as if the designers had never left Albany to look at the gorgeous setting and see its aesthetic potential. For years, articles were written about the depressing nature of the campus and reported all over scientific journals. None of the physical shortcomings of the university, however, seemed to thwart their hiring of a terrific faculty. By the time I joined the university, it had been in business for only eleven years. Even though New York State had imposed its awful bureaucracy from the start, the campus's energetic faculty made it feel like a Silicon Valley startup. Collaborations were easy to form across disciplinary lines, and I was beginning to think about combining biochemical approaches to the study of learning by using split-brain pigeons. Maybe Stony Brook would be a place to do that, too. As I said, energetic graduate students are the key to so many adventures in science. Eager and committed, they find you. If they're smart, stuff really begins to happen. They are the legs, the energy, and the future for any science. And Stony Brook had more than its fair share. One of them, Nicholas Brecca showed an interest in the wacky pigeon idea and is responsible for getting it off the ground. The project required learning a sophisticated behavioral training method, anatomy and surgery, and, of course, biochemistry. Before you knew it, Brecca had mastered all three by calling upon campus specialists, all of them scientists in their own right. After a few years of hard work, the project was completed, and, unfortunately, we couldn't find any differences between the trained and untrained half-brains of a pigeon. The bet was placed, the work was done, and bupkis. That is the way it goes and why one always has side projects. Brecca, for example, went on to a successful career and is now an expert on the retina and a professor of medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. Many of my other projects were outside straight academic work. Ever since my Saul Hurok days as political entrepreneur at Caltech, and my failed attempt to start a new audio tape company with Bill Buckley, another story, I was stuck with a compulsion to be unconventional. Steve Allen, Jr., the son of my late comedian friend, is a physician. We became quite close, and he encouraged the wacky idea I had to make science documentaries. He is hysterically funny, humane, and, like his father, captivated by brain research. At one point, we cooked up an idea to make a film about the brain and creativity. After my move to Stony Brook, I had the Beaulieu 16 movie camera that allowed for sound to be recorded right on the film during filming. This was an improvement on the old Bolex 16 that I'd used at Caltech, with its double sprocket film and its awkward process for adding sound. I thought the Beaulieu would make editing and production easy. 
While the camera was bought for use for my patient work, I thought it could double as an aid to the noble goal of scientific education. The camera, parabolic sound microphones, lights, and all the rest required several bags. All of them were heavy or awkward to carry by myself. Undaunted, I called Steve Sr. and asked if I could interview him about creativity. He couldn't have been more agreeable. Off to Los Angeles, I went, carrying film gear through airports with a certain swagger. I arrived at his home one Saturday morning, and Steve was still lounging around in his blue robe. I didn't think people actually lounged in their robes, except in the movies. He walked me into his living room and suggested ways for me to set up the lighting, tripods, and all the rest. It all started to become surreal, and this little voice in me said, What are you doing? Why are you bothering this guy in his robe? Why aren't you back at Stony Brook doing your research? Who do you think you are, Fellini? I was just about to leave, making some excuse, when Steve said, Looks like you're ready. With that, he started to play one of his own compositions. This could be the start of something big. And for a moment, I did think I was Fellini. The experience was exhilarating, and I vowed to take my gear everywhere to capture moments for the film. In fact, I took the gear to Paris a bit later, set it up in my hotel room at the Paris Hilton, and threw open the window. With the camera on automatic, I filmed myself standing in front of the window, with the Eiffel Tower in the background, and thought my second career was launched. Oh my, we do crazy things. After filming a ride up the Eiffel Tower, in a tour around half of Paris, I went home, loaded up with my footage. With great anticipation, I waited for it to come back from being developed, stuck it in my projector, and sat back to savor my ingenuity. Let me simply say my escapade into filmmaking ended abruptly. My favorite disastrous scene was the one in the hotel window. Because my camera was reading the light level of the bright Paris sky, the guy in the foreground looks like he is in a witness protection program. Of course, one always looks for the silver lining. Steve looked terrific in his robe. New patients, new discoveries, new insights. Meanwhile, the research team was forming to tackle the new human split-brain work. Gal Reese led the charge, and others were soon to join. I also brought my monkey program out from NYU and loaded it up with new students, such as Richard Nakamura, who years later became the deputy director of the National Institute of Mental Health. We were busily exploring the question of whether one brain was as good as two. Cigar-smoking and gentle, Richard preferred to stay with the monkey work. Meanwhile, Joe Ledoux was losing interest in his animal project, and I recruited him into the human work. The split-brain team worked hard, but at first the results were thin. The first patients were a complicated group. While the neurosurgical reports suggested that most of them had had a full colossal section, reports we accepted at face value, it was evident upon much neuropsychological testing that the surgery had not been complete. Before we knew the reports were flawed, we thought we had discovered an interesting fact. Unlike the California patients, who had both the callosum and anterior commissure sectioned, the new patients explicitly had the smaller anterior commissure intact. If any kind of information transferred between the hemispheres in these patients, we, not knowing that their callosal sections were incomplete, assumed it would be due to the intact anterior commissure. We knew that an intact anterior commissure in a monkey allowed for all kinds of visual information to transfer. In the end, we got it right, but we definitely went through a phase where we got it wrong, which became evident when we combined months of neuropsychological testing 
with newly emerging EEG data from the Dartmouth neurologists. At first, we thought we had seen evidence for transfer of visual, somatosensory, and auditory information between the hemispheres and concluded the anterior commissure was the source of that cross-integration. We began to think animals and humans were more alike than not on this parameter. It turns out that the first group of patients had variations in their partial disconnections. Some were partial splits by design. For example, a case might undergo anterior colossal surgery first. If the seizures came under control, then no further surgery was carried out. In other cases, though, there was inadvertent sparing of the anterior callosum. For example, in one case, the anterior callosum was sectioned, and months later, the posterior callosum was sectioned. The surgeon, however, had inadvertently left some anterior callosal fibers where the two surgical sections were to intersect. At the time, neither we nor the surgeon knew this. This patient showed transfer. We assumed it was due to the uncut anterior commissure, since we all assumed the first surgical reports were correct and a complete section of the corpus callosum had been accomplished. A few years later, the EEG results illuminated the story. These rollercoaster results were no fun. We were beginning to back off from testing our New England patients when it all changed, and we began to learn some things. The parts of the callosum that were sectioned did produce some specific modality deficits in interhemispheric integration. That is, specific areas of the callosum integrate specific kinds of sensory information, such as vision and touch. But it was indirect evidence and it wasn't clean. We were all beginning to think we should begin other avenues of research. Then along came Case P.S., a teenager from Vermont who led us out of our confusion and revived our interest. P.S. was reported to have had his entire callosum sectioned in one operation by the Dartmouth surgeons. Even though the Dartmouth procedure required leaving the anterior commissure intact, he was split for sure. In a matter of weeks, it was clear as a bell that a truly fully sectioned callosal patient with the anterior commissure unsectioned was identical to the Caltech patients in terms of the disconnection effects. Nothing transferred between the hemispheres. Each hemisphere seemed specialized in its own way. The trips to Vermont became monthly and stayed that way for many, many years. Many things were immediately evident upon testing P.S. There was, flat out, no interhemispheric transfer of visual information. Visual stimuli presented to the right hemisphere stayed isolated to that hemisphere and could not be named or described by the left hemisphere. This meant the anterior commissure did not transfer visual information as it had in the patients who still had some uncut callosal fibers. P.S.'s tests offered evidence that the human brain was organized differently than a monkey's brain. A fully callosal sectioned monkey with an intact anterior commissure could transfer visual information between the hemispheres. Of course, it also meant the Dartmouth or East Coast cases, as they were to be called, were just like the California cases. This fact would prove to be a sore point between the two research groups in the years ahead. In ideal science, replication is key and a virtue, and everyone warmly collaborates. But science conducted by mere mortals often falls short of this ideal. Ledoux was amped. His introduction to the so-called split-brain patients had been the earlier patients in the Dartmouth series, and while of interest, they were not compelling. Case P.S. was loaded with phenomena 
and Leduc captured many of them. He knew the earlier scientific literature code and would say, let's try this, which might be to ask the patient to draw a cube with the left or right hand. After experiencing months of confusing responses that had come out of the first group of patients, his jaw dropped when he saw P.S. easily draw a cube with his left hand, but not be able to do so with the right hand. Back in our sparse motel room that night, I can remember Ledoux saying, we finally have ourselves a split-brain patient to study. In trip after trip, the dynamic nature of P.S.'s post-surgical course revealed itself. Unlike case W.J., the arm ipsilateral to a particular hemisphere quickly came under the control of that hemisphere. Again, that meant either hemisphere could come to control not only the contralateral arm, but also the ipsilateral arm. And that meant drawing a cube correctly could soon be accomplished by both arms' hands. Ledoux logged all of these changes, and within fifteen months, both hands were equal in skill. This learned control of both arms was evident in the other California patients, so it was not surprising. Still, it is exciting to see things unfold like they are supposed to. P.S. was unique in so many ways, not the least of which was his spunky right hemisphere. Very soon after his surgery, the right hemisphere, while unable to speak, was very responsive when nonverbal outlets were available to him. He was the first split-brain patient to respond to verbal commands to the right hemisphere in addition to simple nouns. If a noun, such as the word apple, was flashed to the right hemisphere, and he was asked to point to a picture that matched the word from among a set of pictures, P.S., like other split-brain patients, had no problem. Yet unlike other patients, when a simple printed command was given to the right hemisphere, like get up or point, he could do that too. The right hemisphere didn't sit there like a lump on a log. It did stuff. In fact, as we were soon to discover, it could have its own preferences. Having a more engaged right hemisphere to work with opened up all kinds of issues and studies. Ledoux describes everything better than most people, especially me. He was my partner in all of these studies. Patient P.S. was especially important. He could use both sides of his brain to read, but only the left hemisphere to speak. Previously, the right hemisphere had been thought of as a lesser partner, with cognitive capacities like a monkey's or chimp's, but not like a human's. The left hemisphere clearly had self-awareness, but whether high-level consciousness was possible on the other side as well seemed dubious. With P.S., we were able to ask whether the right side was self-aware because his right hemisphere could read. So he flashed questions to his right hemisphere, and his left hand would reach out and, using scrabble tiles, spell the answers. In these simple tests, we found out that P.S.'s right hemisphere had a sense of self. He knew his name and had a sense of the future. He had an occupational goal, both important qualities of conscious awareness. It was particularly interesting that the right and left hemispheres had different goals for the future. Might there indeed be two people in one head? In the process of testing the interactions between the two sides, one day in our camper trailer lab, Mike made an important observation. We were giving the right hemisphere written commands, stand, wave, laugh, and P.S. responded appropriately in each case. Had Mike not been there, that's probably as far as it would have gone. We would have been happy to have shown that the right hemisphere could respond to verbal commands. But Mike's incredibly fast and creative mind immediately realized there was more to it. He started asking P.S. why he was doing what he was doing. Remember, 
only the left hemisphere could talk. So when the command to the right hemisphere was stand, P.S. would explain his action by saying he needed to stretch. When it was wave, he said he thought he saw a friend. When it was laugh, he said we were funny. That was the birth of Mike's theory of consciousness as an interpreter. A reason for doing these things was made up to justify the impulse to take a certain action. This led to more experiments to directly test the idea. On the next trip, we simultaneously presented different pictures to the two hemispheres and told them to point to the card that matched the pictures. In the classic example, we presented a snow scene to the right hemisphere and a chicken claw to the left. The left hand pointed to a card picturing a chicken and the right hand to a card picturing a shovel. P.S. explained his choices, saying he saw a chicken claw, so he picked the chicken, and you need a shovel to clean out chicken shit in the shed. The left hemisphere, in other words, used his behavioral responses as the raw data to concoct an interpretation that was then accepted as the explanation of why he did what he did. For the left hemisphere of a split-brain patient, everything done by the right hemisphere is an unconscious act. Mike proposed that our behaviors are controlled by systems that function unconsciously, and that a key function of consciousness is to make sense of, interpret, our behavior. This was his theory of the interpreter. Joseph's flattering retelling of those trailer days fails to fully capture his role in the discovery. When something happens in a setting like that, everybody is equally involved. It's mutual cueing all the way, and our only chore is to make sure the patient is not in on it. He wasn't. In a sense, the insight that P.S. provided us that the left hemisphere would come up with an explanation that made sense of the behaviors initiated by the right brain came from changing our mindset, not his. For the previous twenty years, split-brain researchers were intent on seeing what a particular hemisphere could do and could not do and whether there was information transferred between the hemispheres. This led us to ask a certain kind of question in a certain way. After we presented a stimulus to one hemisphere or the other, we would ask, What did you see? It wasn't until twenty years later that we finally wondered, What does the left-speaking hemisphere think about all these things the right hemisphere is doing? After all, the left hemisphere has no clue why the behaviors are happening. Finally, it dawned on us in that cold trailer. Joseph and I asked, Why did you do what you just did? In simply changing the question asked of the patient, a virtual torrent of new information and insight flowed. Though the left hemisphere had no clue, it would not be satisfied to state it did not know. It would guess, prevaricate, rationalize, and look for a cause and effect, but it would always come up with an answer that fit the circumstances. In my opinion, it is the most stunning result from split-brain research. Over the next few years, we hammered away at it with the patients we studied and the interpreter revealed itself in many classic experiments. The one described above was a typical example of the speaking left hemisphere piping up with some kind of story to explain the actions that were initiated by the right hemisphere without the knowledge of the left hemisphere. At other times, the left hemisphere would explain away emotional feelings caused by the right hemisphere's experiences. As I've mentioned earlier, emotional states appear to transfer between the hemispheres subcortically and this transfer is not affected by severing the corpus callosum. Thus, even though all of the perceptions and experiences leading up to that emotional state may be isolated to the right hemisphere, both hemispheres will feel the emotion. Though the left hemisphere will have no clue why or where the emotion came from, 
he will always try to explain it away. For example, I showed a scary fire safety video about a guy getting pushed into a fire to the right hemisphere of VP. When asked what she saw, she said, I don't really know what I saw. I think just a white flash. But when asked if it made her feel any emotion, she said, I don't really know why, but I'm kind of scared. I feel jumpy. I think maybe I don't like this room, or maybe it's you. You're getting me nervous. She then turned to one of the research assistants and said, I know I like Dr. Gazaniga, but right now I'm scared of him for some reason. The left hemisphere felt the negative valence of the emotion, but had no knowledge of what the cause was. The interesting thing is that lack of knowledge does not stop it from coming up with a makes-sense explanation that fits the circumstances. I was standing there, and she was upset. Her interpreter put the two together into a cause-and-effect conclusion. I must have scared her. The interpreter can affect many cognitive processes, including memory. For instance, Elizabeth Phelps, then a postdoctoral fellow and now a distinguished cognitive neuroscientist at NYU, and I showed a series of photographs to split-brain patients. The photographs told the story of a man getting up in the morning and getting ready for work. Later, we showed them another series of photographs and asked which ones they recognized. These photographs included the same pictures, some new ones that were unrelated to the storyline, and some that were closely related to the storyline. While the right and left hemispheres both accurately identified the previously seen photographs, the left hemisphere also falsely recognized the new pictures that were related to the story. The left hemisphere has a tendency to grasp the gist of a situation, make an inference that fits in well with the general schema of the event, and toss out anything that does not. This elaboration has a deleterious effect on accuracy, but usually makes it easier to process new information. The right hemisphere does not do this. It is totally truthful and only identifies the original pictures. The interpreter also will explain away input from the body as illustrated in the following classic experiment, which most likely would not pass muster today with the Human Subjects Committee. Stanley Schachter and Jerry Singer told volunteers for an experiment that they were getting a vitamin injection to see if it had any effect on the visual system. What they really received was an injection of epinephrine, and what the researchers really wondered was if the appraisal of their physical reaction would depend on the surroundings. Some of the subjects were told that the vitamin injection would cause side effects, such as palpitations, tremors, and flushing, and some were told that there were no side effects. After the injection of epinephrine, which does have the side effect of palpitations, tremors, and flushing, a confederate of the researcher came into the room with the volunteer and behaved in either a euphoric or an angry manner. The volunteers who were told about the side effects of the injection attributed their symptoms to the drug. Those who were not informed, however, attributed their autonomic arousal to the environment. Those who were with the euphoric confederate reported being elated, and those with the angry confederate reported being angry. Three different reasonable cause-and-effect explanations for the same physical symptoms came spewing out of their left hemisphere interpreters. Only one was correct, however, the injection of epinephrine. So when it comes to the interpreter, facts are cool but not necessary. The left brain uses whatever is at hand and ad-libs the rest. The first makes-sense explanation will do. It looks for cause and effect and creates order out of the chaos of inputs that have been presented to it by all the other processes spewing out information. This is what our brain does all day long. It takes input from various areas of our brain 
and from the environment and synthesizes it into a story that makes sense. The right hemisphere learns to speak. Case P.S. was also the first to reveal another major reality in split-brain research. His right hemisphere actually began to speak simple utterances. Soon after his surgery, he behaved like many split-brain patients. The left hemisphere could understand language and could speak. The right hemisphere could also understand simple language but could not speak. That was the standard situation. P.S., however, was beginning to behave differently. He startled us by uttering single words out of his right hemisphere. We knew it was right hemisphere speech because of a simple test. We would flash a picture of an object to each hemisphere and ask P.S. to name what he saw. About two years after his surgery, he began to name objects no matter which hemisphere saw them. To test to see if information was somehow transferring between the two hemispheres, we changed the question. We didn't ask, what did you see? But, are the pictures the same or different? He couldn't do it. It was weird. If the pictures flashed separately to the right and left hemispheres had been, say, of an apple and duck, he could say apple and duck. But these separated hemispheres couldn't compare what they saw and indicate if the pictures were the same or different. Of course, if both pictures had been presented to one hemisphere or the other, to say same or different was trivially easy. We pushed hard on this. The ability of a right hemisphere to change and be able to speak was there, no doubt about it. Over the following years, this ability began to appear in other patients as well. We would later find that both Case VP and JW learned to speak out of the right hemisphere. In one test, we showed how exotic it could become. Overall, our excitement was unbounded. Every working scientist, scholar, or detective of anything, for that matter, knows the rush that occurs with discovery. Another secret of the natural world revealed. And you were there, front row seats and all. It was an exciting time, and more changes were on the horizon. I decided to take a job at Cornell University Medical College and was moving back to New York City. Chapter 5 Brain Imaging Confirms Split-Brain Surgeries The scientist, by the very nature of his commitment, creates more and more questions, never fewer. Indeed, the measure of our intellectual maturity, one philosopher suggests, is our capacity to feel less and less satisfied with our answers to better problems. G. W. Alport I joined the faculty of Cornell University Medical College at a time when doctors didn't advertise their services and money wasn't the 24-7 topic of hospital employees. Medical schools were exciting places to be, and the doctors worked hundred-hour weeks without blinking an eye. It was the tempo and the intensity of a first-rate medical school that captured my energies. I loved it, and I knew I was going to learn a lot. The first big thing was that I had traded graduate students for medical residents who were completely different animals. Graduate students are trained in the experimental methods of science, on how to do experiments. Residents are a bit older and wiser. They are making more decisions in a day than most of us make in a year. They interact with people dying, rejoicing, crying, laughing, the whole gamut of life's emotions. In a word, they are seasoned in a way graduate students are not. My job was to help bring these two kinds of experiences and skills together to study human cognition. I was to now mentor both PhDs and MDs. Fred Plum, the legendary chairman of the Department of Neurology at Cornell, was the catalyst. 
Somehow he had got it in his head that his residence needed to be trained in neuropsychology, and somehow he got hold of me when I was at Stony Brook. The first idea was to come into town on Thursdays and do special neuropsychology rounds with the residents. That was a bold idea since I didn't know much about the vast variety of neurologic syndromes. I had read about them all and had experience with the phasics, but actually examining all kinds of patients? How was I going to be professorial about that, and on rounds no less? Working the rounds at Cornell quickly became one of the great experiences of my life. Plum's residents, all of them, were outstanding and some of the kindest and most fun-loving people I have ever known. They quickly figured out I was the rookie at rounds. In a way, they gracefully became the teachers and I became the student. I found myself loving the neurology wards. Soon enough, I began to get the hang of it and started to suggest experiments that might reveal something new about a classic syndrome. Busy residents don't mess around. If an idea crystallized, they wanted to do the experiment right then. Here, they would say, let's take the patient down the hall to the storage room. We can set up a projector on the table in there. Or, there is a patient on 6 East with a global amnesia. Get the portable EEG machine. We can document her seizures and then give IV Valium to bring her around. They did all of this on top of their regular grueling workload. It wasn't long before Plum decided his plan for adding neuropsychology to his neurology program was working. He offered me a full-time job as a professor. I loved the idea, and it came at a moment when my personal life was changing as well. The offer came at a time when Linda and I had decided to go different ways. She would stay in Stony Brook with our four daughters, a huge source of joy in my life, during the week, and I would come out and spend the weekends with them. That was very tough stuff, but to everyone's credit, it worked out for everyone involved. Learning from Patients and Accessing the Unconscious I convinced Ledoux to join me in my new lab at Cornell, and together we tried to figure out what our next projects might be. One of these grew out of rounds. One of the residents was Bruce Volpe, a superb physician and a human with a preternatural energy. He started to show us patients with lesions in their right parietal cortex with what seemed to me the most bizarre syndrome. You'd ask such a patient to look right at your nose. Then you'd raise your left hand, showing either one or two fingers, and ask the patient what they saw. They'd easily give the right answer. Do the same thing with the right hand. Again, the patient gave the right answer. Now came the critical observation. Raise both hands, such that the left was showing one or two fingers and the right was as well. A truly remarkable thing happened. These patients all denied the information being provided by your right hand. It was as if your right hand no longer existed. The phenomenon is called double simultaneous extinction. It goes on all the time in the neurologic clinic and is a disorder of attention. After one gets over the astonishing reality of the syndrome, the question arises, what the heck happens to that information about the right hand that you know got into the brain? After all, when only the examiner's single right hand was elevated, the patient easily named the number of fingers that were raised. When the information was suppressed by having both hands raised, was that information no longer accessible to the patient's conscious cognitive system? Or was it accessible, but the patient unable either to talk about it or to be aware that the information was being used to help him or her make a decision? Maybe this anomaly would provide an avenue into the unconscious. Volpe and Ledoux went to work. While Volpe rounded up a group of patients with similar lesions who manifested this phenomenon, 
Ledoux designed the experiment and helped Bruce learn some of the tricks of the psychological trade. The critical experiment was simple. We planned to flash pictures into each visual field simultaneously and ask the patients if the pictures were the same or different. Thus the patient was simply required to make one spoken response. Yet to get it right, information from both visual fields would somehow have to be combined in the brain, and following that process, go to the speech centers for a response. The first step was to see if the patients could do the task successfully. The answer was clear. The patients who would deny the presentation of information in their left visual field nonetheless could use it to make the correct same or different judgment. As you can imagine, when the patients were asked what had been presented on the same trials, they simply said two apples or whatever the stimuli had been. When asked what was presented on the different trials, however, they could never name the picture shown to the extinguished field. Bingo, the experiment worked. This experiment turned out to open up a small cottage industry of research. Put simply, we had demonstrated that information that could not be consciously accessed could nonetheless influence how a seemingly conscious decision was made. We were able to peek into the vast unconscious, the networks that most likely govern most of what we do. We were terribly proud of ourselves, and soon enough, others took up the idea and extended it in many clever ways.